kind of like, where is everything? Oh yeah, it's over there. He is the one who alone is able. Uh, if there's anything to describe us, it's that we are not able. Inable. We lack ability. And, uh, and so a part, of, a part of what we enjoy together as brothers and sisters in Jesus is the reliance upon God together. Because he is the one who is almighty, all-powerful, and gracious toward us who don't deserve his grace. That's that, we don't deserve his grace, and that's a part of what grace is. It's undeserved favor. And we've seen that in a lot of ways uh, in, in our, our church family. One would be those kiddos that uh, we just uh, let leave for the, their children's classes and the others that we are having in here. And I did notice the mixed reactions. Some were like, yay! And others were like, really? You know? Um, we're glad to have a, a, an all-church you know, family Sunday. And, and on the fifth Sunday, that's how things operate right now. But it does lead to um, an opportunity, really, that we have as a church. And that is to serve in, in children's ministries. And if you're here today and you love kids and you value the next generation of believers, which is something our church values deeply. I mean, if you think about all of the ways in which we minister to kids here, and how much of our time and focus is on kiddos. You'd understand that. Everything from Awana to Elevate midweek to Sunday mornings to uh, the VBSs in the summer and, and, and even this fall festival that's coming up. By the way, bring the candy, folks. We need candy. It's on sale. Grab a bag for yourself. Grab a bag for the bucket. That's how it works. You know? But um, all these different things we're doing, we want, we want to care for children. And, and so if, if you're here today and you have a heart for that, yes, you need to be a member to care for kids. It's true. But really, why would you want to walk around uh, as a believer and not be a member of a local church? I don't get that. Uh, what we're saying by being members is I want to be held accountable. I need to be a member. I need you holding me accountable <laughs> to walking with the Lord. And so part of it is, yes, you need to be a member. But then uh, as that, a member, uh, you're actually, you're, you're, you're investing in, in what's to come after we're gone. Now, one writer put it that way, and I think they were talking about parenting, but I think serving in kids' ministries is similar to that. Uh, when you're laboring in the life of children, you are writing a letter to a time when you're not here anymore. And you can have that kind of an impact. And so if you want to have that kind of an impact, I want to encourage you to talk to Mary Runyon. And I think she's around here somewhere. I don't know where she's. Oh, there she's right there. There she is. So talk to Mary, and she'd be happy to help you take those next steps. Um, because, again, we love being a multi-generational church. And uh, we love just having kiddos around and seeing what God's going to do with them in the future. It's a thrilling thing to consider. Something else that we can uh, celebrate together and give thanks to God for would be what's happening with our Access for All project. And if you just recently are joining us, we're embarking as a church family on expanding our facilities. If you look out those windows right there, there's this thing called the nursery wing. And we're going to be expanding that to better accommodate uh, people that have mobility issues. We're also expanding the nursery because we need to, which praise God that we need to do that. Uh, we're, so we're increasing space. We're improving the area where we're making the restrooms accessible and welcoming. And, uh, and so we've been giving towards that. And just to give you an update, uh, most recently, praise God for his generosity through you and what you've been doing. So with the projected giving as of the end of September, 
was to be at right around $284,000. And as of now, or as of the end of September, I should say, the giving came in at $323,000. So praise God for that. Yeah, that's a huge thing. And we recognize that this is a sacrificial giving. These are not uh, the kinds of things where we take this lightly. It's a privilege to be a part of what God's doing in that. Uh, the entire project we've estimated is right around $1.6 million. We're paying for part of it uh, with the savings that we have on hand as a church. We're paying for part of it by raising these funds together and committing to this giving campaign. And then if we need to, we, we've said we'll go into debt on some of it. Uh, we'd rather not. If, if just, as, as the giving comes in, it would be a joy to see that, that happen. But, um, but we praise God for that. And thank you. The, our architect is busy at work. So Amy, the architect, is doing all kinds of stuff right now. We'll have more updates for you on the, the various ways that her and her company are, are drawing things up. Uh, I will give you a little sneak preview just from a description. They actually have the technology now that you can have a digital walkthrough of this new wing. And they had it down to um, what time of day do you want to make it? And then the, where's the physical location of the building? Okay, and what direction is everything facing? Okay, well, at this time of day, the sun's going to hit that window, and it's going to look like this. And I'm going, whoa. <laughs> I'm waiting for the day that we can just have a digital kind of entity there that we can all enjoy without having to build the building at all. <laughs> huh? That saves some money. Think about it. Of course, we're all walking around with those visors on. Isn't this great? You know, who knows what's happening? That's unhealthy in all kinds of ways. Let's not do that. But, uh, but we are grateful for what God's doing through you. So please keep pressing ahead and we'll see what he, what, how, what he accomplishes as we continue to give and, and make our place more open and, and giving access for all. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm amazed at how fickle I can be when it comes to uh, certain things like, like food, for example, Okay. Um, I, I will have this thing where like, I cannot wait to have maybe this dish, you know, um, sometimes we'll go shopping, you go to Trader Joe's, right? The adventure of Trader Joe's shopping. We, we, can't, we have a borderline rule that we are not totally following this because it's a little dangerous, but someone told us to do this. And we've been taking it to heart. Whenever you go to Trader Joe's, try one thing new. Try one thing new. So we've done that a couple times, but, but I've realized something that if we start getting something I like, I get tired of it. That's just how American I am. I'm so American, right? So it's like, there's this like granola stuff. By the way, yes, I've been eating all the granola, okay? Sorry, all right, it's me. I'm the culprit, all right? Jen asked the other day, and I thought, no, I don't think I have been. And I thought about, no, I probably have been actually. So my full confession. But it's this pecan granola stuff, right? So we got like a bag of it. I think it's awesome. We got another bag of it. I think it's, you know, it's really good. We got another bag. Hey, it's granola. You know what I'm saying? But this isn't all in one day, okay? You're looking at me like, what? No, it's like over months of time, right? And so then eventually, like on our fifth bag, I'm like, you know, I, I could take it or leave it. I mean, I, you know, whatever. I mean, it's granola, right? But it's amazing what happened from the first time of, ooh, this is really good, to uh, to uh, to indifference. And I, I think that sometimes as us as believers— here today in the 21st century America, we can get the same way about the things of Jesus. 
it's really easy when we've heard something about him, especially if, if we're new. And there are many people in this room, by the way, who are new, who are exploring the things of Jesus for the first time. And we're grateful that you're here. Uh, but there are others of us who've been walking with Jesus for a longer time. And, and many who've probably been walking with Jesus more than long than I've been alive. And, which, by the way, is not that long. So don't look at me like that. All right. But, but we, we have this way of it's exciting or, or new. And then we kind of become, I don't know, kind of like less, less excited, less astonished, less taken aback by what God has done. And, and as a result of that, we can come to some sections of Scripture where it almost becomes too familiar to us. And I think the passage that we're in this morning is potentially one of those. And we find that in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through, through 26. You'll find that on page 48 in the Bible on the chair rack in front of you. But, but it's, it's one of those passages where we've read it before, and, and I think what happens is we miss out on something when we just, oh, I've heard this before. Because the people who were there, the passage tells us something very clearly. It tells us these people were astonished. They were astonished. It means to stop and to look at something and to just kind of, it's like one of those poof, mind blown thing. Uh, there are some languages that actually have a hard time translating the phrase here. I was reading some stuff and there's one commentator who does a lot on translation and they were struggling because in some languages, the word astonished, they don't really have a word for that. So they were trying to figure out another way to phrase it. And so one of the phrases was, they were standing by themselves looking. That was part of the language they were translating into. So it's almost like literally an out-of-body experience kind of thing where I'm standing here, I'm so amazed, I'm not even there anymore. I'm now looking at it from the side. I'm taken aback. And so we're going to stand right now and read this passage. I want all of us to prayerfully, go ahead and you can stand, yeah. As, you're, as, we're, as we're following along and as I read, let's prayerfully ask God, Lord, please protect me from thinking I've heard this before and just kind of going through it. Help me instead to have the heart of those who were here. And, and may you, Lord, have your way with, with me as this passage is, is unfolded. So we, uh, we just ended last week in chapter 5, verse 16, where Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. And now Luke picks up in verse 17. One day... He was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some of the men, or some men, were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to get, set him down in front of him. But not finding a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, 
get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we ask that you would help us to grasp the astonishing, remarkable things Christ has done, especially in this account. Lord, may we be struck to the core because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And may we be those who turn to him by faith, who walk with him, who trust in him. May we also experience that forgiveness of sins that comes only through him. We thank you for these beautiful, astonishing truths. And we look to you to apply them to our hearts now by your spirit's power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So we're going to go through the narrative and kind of enjoy it, let it unfold before us. And then we'll come back and we'll look at some ways we can apply this to our lives. But uh, what we see here, first of all, is Jesus' is teaching. And of course, that's what he was doing constantly. We've already said in the earlier sections of this very gospel that Jesus said, this is the reason I came out. I came to preach and teach. He was preaching and teaching in the synagogues and in other places. And at this time, he's actually in someone's house. And uh, word is spreading. It's getting around. This guy can heal. This guy can cast out demons. And so as the word spreads, various people from various places are coming. And now it's noteworthy that actually Pharisees and teachers of the law have come. And they've come from all over the place, from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem. And Jesus' power to heal is very, very evident. And, uh, and, and Luke is preparing us for what's about to happen in the end of verse 17. He's saying the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. He's not implying there, and there were times when it wasn't. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, hey, here's a cue, a narrative cue. Something's about to happen. Be awake, be ready for it. And so there are some men carrying on a bed a friend who's paralyzed. And uh, you can see with all these crowds crushing in on Jesus, there's no way they can possibly get in. So they take him up to the roof. Now, some have said, hey, wait a minute, come on. Getting a guy up onto a roof, you know, on one of those kind of caught things. What are they talking about? Removing tiles. How does, you know, and so some skeptics have said, not likely. There probably weren't even tiles on the roof. You know, this doesn't seem like a, a, a good solid narrative for them. Well, here's the thing. If you look historically at what homes were like, the rooftops of homes in this region were flat. They were there for a reason. It got hot. They did not have this thing called air conditioning. Okay, where did you go to cool off? You go outside up on the roof. Um, it, was, it was a place where you can relax. It was used for social gatherings sometimes. Um, apparently from the book of Proverbs, we find out that uh, where it says, uh, it is better to be on the roof than in a house with a contentious woman. Okay, so that's a little wisdom from Proverbs. What a, apparently a lot of husbands utilize the roof, okay, all the time. 
It's like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm out of here, love. I'm going to be on the roof. Talk to you. you know? I mean, that's, that was normal. So the rooftop was a place that people would go. And so there would have been an outdoor stairwell of some kind. And so they would just, they didn't have to climb onto the roof. They just went up to the roof because apparently the crowd wasn't on the roof. They were in the house with where Jesus was. Uh, in terms of tiles, yeah, this could have been a nicer home. There were uh, tiles used uh, in, in, that, in that time. It would have been, again, a, a nicer home than a customary home. But certainly... It wasn't uncommon. Now, what kind of damage is being done to the house with the removal of the tiles? I have no idea. That's not the point of the narrative. If you're the homeowner, you're probably going, seriously, what are you doing, right? Uh, but anyway, they lower him down, and there he is in front of Jesus. And of course, you know, again, if we're thinking of the astonishing things Jesus does, this is one of them. Because here this guy is, a paralytic on a stretcher in front of Jesus, and we look at all the ministry Jesus has had. We look at all the crowds gathering because word about him has spread. We got religious leaders there because word about him has spread. And the one thing you think he's going to do is what? Heal the guy. I mean, you know that he can. And yet, Jesus does something astonishing. Verse 20. Take a close look at it. Seeing their faith. Whose faith? Now, the guys who brought their friend and the friend, all of them, they're trusting Jesus at this point. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Whoa. Forgiveness. What a huge, huge term. You know, it is so foreign to us as people, isn't it? Forgiveness. We are not very likely to forgive. If left to ourselves, what do we do? We, we will typically take vengeance or demand justice. That's what we do. And yet God is eager to forgive. God, God loves forgiving. He's also perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. But, but when he calls his followers to love their enemies and to do good, good to those who harm them, he's calling us to be more like him. And so forgiveness is, is our greatest need as, as people. And, and forgiveness is, is the gift that God gives through Jesus. Jesus, who is the greatest gift ever given. So really, right here, you have a core part of the good news. Jesus comes to forgive sinners. Now, would they have associated his particular malady with sin? Some of them might have. We know that Jesus was asked a question later by his uh, disciples regarding another person who, who uh, also was unable to, to walk. And there, is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus' response to them was really interesting. It, was, it wasn't because of his sin or his parents' sin. It was so the glory of God would be made known right now. Get up. So he was already kind of pushing aside those kind of teachings that were misunderstanding the truth and applying things that shouldn't be applied in certain places. But here, he goes right to that key main thing. And, uh, and, and, and so this is shocking in a lot of ways. Number one, it's shocking because people weren't expecting that. They were expecting him to heal him. But secondly, it's also shocking because 
All of the people gathered there, especially the Pharisees, knew well that forgiveness didn't come cheap. That, that, that really, forgiveness came, this act of absolution of sins came as a result of sacrifice, as a result of engaging with God either in the tabernacle during the wilderness wanderings or later in the temple. There was a priest. That priest had a job to, to help people in bringing their offerings. But get this, even the high priest could not forgive sins. He could never do that. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus takes to himself divine prerogative and responsibility and says, your sins are forgiven. You notice he doesn't say something like, you know, uh, in the name of someone else. He doesn't refer to a higher power or a higher authority. He's not even talking about sin committed against himself. You know, that would be regular, right? If you offend me, and that would be certainly true in the first century, you can forgive one another, but he's not claiming that here. Jesus is looking at this man and saying declaratively, your sins of every kind, towards them, towards others, towards God, all of it, I declare you forgiven. And when you think of this, it's shocking in another way. Not, it's not just that people didn't expect him to do that. And it's not just that Jesus is claiming for himself divine prerogative. But it's also shocking in a sense because Jesus is declaring himself to be God. And he is so. And when we think about the offense of sinners against God, it is shocking that God offers forgiveness to anyone. A guy named Alexander McLaren wrote it this way, quote, the essential part of the gospel is the unrestrained flow of love from the offended heart of God who's been sinned against. Pardon is God's love. Unchecked and unembittered, granted to the wrongdoer. That is a divine act exclusively. So that God even offers this forgiveness is shocking. That Jesus is claiming to be God is shocking. And that he's extending forgiveness, again, not in the name of someone else or from God, but from his own person. I declare you are forgiven. Well, the religious leaders of the time, they, they picked up on it, didn't they? Pretty, pretty <laughs> it did not escape them. Look at verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees begin to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Hey, that's good theology. They're right. God alone can do that. It's seen repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Think of uh, Psalm 103, verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases? Yahweh. Isaiah 43, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Who's talking there? God. Micah 7, verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. God does that. 
they're right. I mean, think about this. The entire book of Leviticus is there in order to show people how to approach a holy God on his terms. And how this forgiveness requires sacrifice. But there's an entire custom that goes with this. So Jesus, what does he do? You got to love this. He's aware of their reasoning because he's God again. He's omniscient. And he says to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you or to say, get up and walk. Jesus has now taken them on a little logical journey. Okay, you don't believe me? I can forgive sin? Great. Let's do a little thing here. What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to actually tell this guy who can't walk to get up and walk? He's, he's using a, a, a comparison between saying and doing. It's easier to say something that can't be disproved than to tell them to actually get up and walk, which can be disproved. And so he's showing, he's giving them a proof. And then look what he says in verse 24. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. There's a lot of freight when he says, theological freight, when he says son of man. When he says that, the people who are listening to him, they're thinking right away, wait a minute. The prophet Daniel talked about this son of man. That's, that's uh, from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, when it says, I saw the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That's the son of man. The ruler of all who is returning to make all things right. Interesting, in Daniel 7 too, you've got the Ancient of Days who is presenting him the kingdom. And so you even have an, a brief indication of, of, of what we would call the Trinity. The Father, the Ancient of Days, giving the Son, the Son of Man, the kingdom. All the way back in Daniel 7. So when Jesus says this, you can just tell, I mean, I'm sure each person there was just going, wait a minute, is he saying he's, he's the Messiah? He's the son of man? He's saying that? And then in the next moment, he says, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. And then what happens? The guy does exactly that. Again, this is not some sort of fake pseudo healing. It wasn't like he kind of, he, he kind of had a cramp in his leg. And then this guy walked up and said, be healed. And then he sprung up. And then like two weeks later, the cramp kind of came back. None of that. No, it was a full on complete healing in that moment. Someone paralyzed got up and went home. Notice the response in verse 26. They were all struck with astonishment. There we are. They were all standing beside themselves, looking in ways they could not put things together. They, they had no way to comprehend this completely. They began glorifying God. They were filled with fear. Isn't that interesting? So there's glorifying God. There's astonishment. There's fear. Respect. Awe. Of who God is. When the Pharisees charged Jesus with blasphemy, they were understanding theologically 
the truth of what was happening. The problem was they didn't recognize who Jesus was. Because if he was anybody but who he was, namely God incarnate, then yes, he is committing blasphemy. But he does this miracle. He demonstrates that his claim is true. And he demonstrates that he in fact does have the prerogative to forgive sins. Here's the question. Are you astonished at Jesus? Are you amazed that Jesus is in fact the God-man, the Messiah? Are you amazed that for all who come to him by faith, he declares your sins are forgiven? Are you stunned by that? Sometimes I, I, it seems like, no, not, not really. I mean, even, you know, again, the 21st century American kind of mindset on sins is what sin? Right? Oh, yeah, Jesus forgave my sin. Oh, really? Well, that's good. You know, I forgave myself years ago. That's often our attitude. You know, sometimes I think we're, we're even convinced, you know, we can, you know, if the guy had, a, had that kind of physical Malady, certainly if we had a time machine, we can go back and we can get the guy back up off the cot. No problem. And then with the sin stuff, yeah, we, we, we've got the, uh, a great, uh, you know, self-help program for that. But no, this is, this is shocking and stunning because what Jesus does is demonstrate that he's come to accomplish what the law could never accomplish. He forgives sin by an extension of grace. An extension of grace that was received, you'll notice, by faith. He saw the faith of the friends and the guy. And so Jesus' ability to forgive sins is verified by the healing miracle. Who can forgive sins but God? And the way they phrase it here, they actually use the word alone. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus grants that. That's right. But if no human being can forgive sins, if God alone can forgive sins, and if Jesus is able to forgive sins, then what does this imply? Actually, what does it declare? Jesus is God. So as we consider for ourselves, are we amazed? We come to realize when we really encounter Jesus, we will be astonished. If you really encounter Jesus, you will be astonished. Why? First, because Jesus declares his authority to forgive sin. And again, he can forgive sin because he is God. And we find also that Jesus shows his power to heal disease. That also is something that astonishes those who really encounter him. But not only does Jesus astonish by his authority to forgive and by his power to heal, but really in this case, he proves his authority to forgive sins by his power to heal. He proves it. It's those two things together. 
So he declares his authority to forgive. He shows his power to heal disease. But most of all, he proves his authority to forgive sins by his power to heal disease. And this is not just because he takes sin and sweeps it under the rug. He, 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 he's describing for them now his power to forgive sin. He's showing them it's by trusting in him that they receive that forgiveness of sins. But this sin is not going to be paid for at the temple. It's going to be paid for on Golgotha, at the cross. That's where Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, will voluntarily give his own life as a ransom for sinners who come to him by faith. Yes, Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. I have authority and power to forgive sin in the same way that I have a, that power and authority to heal. And if you accept the one as factual, you have to accept the other as factual. And as much as the Pharisees wanted to deny both of those things, they couldn't because this man had the audacity to actually get up and walk out healed. It was undeniable. And friends, it still is undeniable. If you're here today and you've not yet come to that place of trusting Jesus, his call to you is to come to him, to turn to him, to trust him. Because he doesn't just take your sins and sweep them under the rug. No, what he does is he pays for them with his own life. He's the one that separates you from your sin as far as the east is from the west because he took your sin upon himself. And when you trust him by faith, he offers you not simply a clean slate. No, he takes, he takes your slate, he breaks it over his knee, he throws it away, and he gives you a new slate with his righteousness on it. It's a gift. And you can have that today. If you're here today and you have trusted Jesus, but for some reason these things have become old, and less astonishing. Let's, by his grace, even now, rekindle our astonishment. Think about it. That, that Jesus could actually conquer sin? And again, unlike the, the typical response out of, oh, of course, why wouldn't he, why wouldn't he forgive sin? It, it's his job to forgive sin, isn't it? No. He is the holy, holy, holy one. He's coming back to judge. And, and on that day, where are you standing? That, that is the question you have to ask. And yet by grace, he pays the price for sin, not just to ignore it, but he pays that price. And that's power. And how does a holy, holy, holy God forgive he himself comes and, and, and carries out and fulfills the very law that's condemning people. And then he condemns sin by his own perfect obedience and death in our place. And that should bring us to our knees with overjoyed awe. I think of uh, the psalmist in Psalm 103, verses 3 and 4, and it just says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And then he goes on to say, but with you, there is forgiveness. And notice the next phrase, so that you may be feared. 
when we really see what Jesus did to bring about forgiveness, we should be put in the place of awe. Who can take on the foe of sin? Who can, can defeat the power of sin? There's only one person in the universe who has that power, who has the authority, who has the right to declare guilty people innocent, to declare sinful people righteous. And that one singular person is the lawgiver and the judge and the executioner. It is God himself. He is the God who justifies the ungodly. And how does he do that? By satisfying his justice on the cross and extending his grace. So God is the one who forgives. Jesus is the one who carries out that mighty act. He has the authority to forgive sin because he is the son of man, the Messiah, the divine ruler of all. He is God. And so by his grace, let's be astonished and rejoice. How can we cultivate that more? I think we need to spend time in this passage this week. I think we need to declare just with great joy the fact that it is in fact finished. I think we'll know we're following this more and we're more astounded and we're more aware of this and in awe in how quickly or how more quickly and how we grow in more in speed in forgiving one another. But that's God's, God's work and for him we give, we give thanks. Salvation belongs to the Lord and he's the one that um, accomplishes that. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to conclude with a song um, describing Jesus' work to forgive, his authority in that, his power in that, and also the way that he's the one that faithfully carries his children home. And so go ahead and stand if you would.